Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. We live in South Florida, prone to hurricane impacts. How do you prepare for an incoming storm? Does the cone of concern help you decide to stay or leave? How about the intensity of a system? Would you pay for more accurate information? There is a perceived value when the wind speed is predicted accurately, and that value is greater than all of the other values that we were able to measure, meaning that people do value being able to understand what category a storm is more than anything else. Meteorologist Jackson Dill takes a look at a study to figure out if all the hurricane data results in good decision making. Also, we love the beach. Plenty of sunshine, breezy conditions, and warm waters. But there are plenty of dangers from lightning to rip currents. Baywatch is fictional, but we have the real deal in South Florida. The brave men and women who make sure you stay safe and when called upon, rescue folks in trouble and save lives. Meteorologist Brent Cameron dips his toes into the ocean for this story. That's on this edition of Weather or Not. When the tropics heat up, you can stay cool. Because the chief works right here. Seven's chief meteorologist, Phil Farrow. He's been doing this for nearly 30 years. As soon as we get information, we bring it to you instantly. Wilma, Katrina, Irma, he guided us safely through them all. That guy never sleeps, but that's so you can sleep easier. Accurate information is everything during a hurricane threat. We pride ourselves at WSVN in making sure you stay informed. Here's meteorologist Jackson Dill. A recent study has found that the public is generally willing to pay more for better hurricane forecast. With another active season expected ahead, I spoke with Renato Molina, who is a lead author of the study from the University of Miami, to learn more about it. Renato, thanks so much for joining me. To begin with, you led this study that found that the public is willing to pay more for better forecasts. Can you explain how you and your team came to that realization? The way in which we got that result was basically we constructed a survey, an interactive survey way where we show people what was the forecast that they saw at the time and what the forecast would look like if they had access to a, a more accurate forecast. So that basically until you know, like, going back to the models that NOAA uses in order to produce all of these forecasts in terms of, you know, like track prediction, wind speed prediction, and also precipitation prediction, and using the same values that people were shown at the time for Florence and Michael. And then we just asked them, we, we, we said, listen, this is what, what you saw at the time. This is what the forecast would have looked like under, you know, like a different level of precision. And, and then we basically asked them, you know, would you be willing to pay for that in, in the form of increased taxes? What that is called is a continuing valuation study. And that basically entails going and asking people if they were willing to experience, you know, like an increase in their overall household tax level every year for in exchange for an improved product. In this case, you know, like a better forecast. What kinds of questions were asked to people in past hurricane impact zones that led to this conclusion? 
we have to go through a bunch of steps in order to ensure that the questions are somewhat meaningful. And that includes asking them background questions, such as where they live, did they experience this storm, were they, you know, like at the time living in the same area. Uh, and that allows us kind of like to establish, yeah, is this person relevant for this study? And we can also get observations that will allow us to control for things that are common among several individuals. Uh, and then we control for that in the survey when we, when we derive their results. Uh, we also, for instance, ask them a bunch, a bunch of questions about what's your relationship with the government? Do you trust the government to solve your problems? Do you think there is you know, like a role of the government in delivering these products? And so on and so forth. There are many, many questions that we, we, we ask them in order to control for that. And the way in which we derive these, it's, it's also variable. So just to understand what I'm talking about here. So imagine you have, and when I said interactive survey, that's basically what I mean. Imagine you have multiple options in terms of potential improvements or actually decreases in precision, right? So your forecast could be more or less accurate. And then I randomize that change relative to the overall state, which is basically, so for instance, at the time in 2018, the trend that the, the precision was following at, at 2018, then we vary that. We can make it more or less accurate relative to that trend. And that basically triggers a bunch of potential scenarios that people get asked about. All of that is random. And then the cost of that improvement is also random. So I randomize basically the increase in taxes that you are presented with the given precision that you're shown in the survey. It's, as I was saying, it's an interactive survey that makes sure we, we can control for as much as possible, given the, the questions that we're allowed to ask. So does this mean that the public surveyed in the study would want to see a greater budget geared toward better weather modeling by the government? At the time, we actually had to design the survey so as to reflect, you know, uh, true opinions of people. And one of the things that we eventually decided was to focus on areas that at the time were recently affected by storms and 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 the two storms that had taken place at the time were Florence and Michael, right? So we basically targeted those areas and the and the logic here was trying to target people that had had the, the, the chance to actually look at forecasts and make decisions recently so as to get a better sense of how people are using these sorts of information. But um, as I was saying before, we also have somewhat of a control, kind of like uh, keeping track if people actually experience the storm or not. Our sample actually, even though it was focused on those areas that were affected, did include a, a significant number of people that were not present at the time when the storm took place. So we had some, some nice variation in terms of people that were in the locality that was affected by a given storm, but also people that were not necessarily affected by it. You know, so we had some, some nice variation then in terms of experience. And what is the importance for the better hurricane forecast from an economic standpoint and in terms of protecting property, especially with a current scientific consensus that hurricanes may be getting stronger? So that's that's a great question. Um, one of the things that we, uh, I mean, I think it's important to understand is that forecasts are valuable if they help people make good decisions, right? And in this case, if they help them prepare in the face of a long falling storm, and that includes, you know, preparing your house, perhaps leaving, get uh, the necessary groceries and so on and so forth, right? And what our results show is basically that people do value precise information. They are able to connect 
or they're able to recognize the mechanism that links an accurate forecast with good decisions made in the face of a landfalling storm. And what we can say from these results is basically that people understand progress, right, in terms of forecasting, and they understand how progress can help them. One of the results uh, I think is somewhat telling in our paper is that people understand progress, but they're not really that familiar with the rate of progress. So one of the things that we do is test, you know, like for different tiers of improvement over time. And people were not necessarily, you know, like sensitive to those changes. So like they understand, oh, the forecast is better. This is good. And I assign a value to that improvement. If that improvement happens, our results are not able to really differentiate to be 10, 20, 30% between those levels. And, you know, like it kind of makes sense because people are not, the general public is not necessarily expert in, in meteorology. So when you tell them, or, okay, so now the error is two meters per second in average, and it's going to go down to 1.5 meters per second. Is that valuable for you? And they say, well, I don't, yes, it is valuable, but, you know, like how valuable it is for me to go from, two to 1.5, it's, it's not entirely clear to us from these results that people are able to understand what those difference in magnitudes mean. But what is very clear from our results, and this is something that we, which we, we did a lot of, you know, like analysis in order to be, be sure that that is a, the, the right result, is that people do understand that when things get better, they're able to make better decisions. And one interesting result that our project measured is that not all sources of information are equal. So for instance, if, if you are able to get information about track, that's valuable. If you're able to get information about wind speed, that's valuable. And precipitation, that's also valuable. But amongst all three possibilities that we tested for, it, the public consistently valued wind speed more than anything else, right? Even though that might not be the, the most clear way to understand what a, what a storm is doing, but what we're trying to say in this paper is, in this, in this study, basically, is that there seems to be a connection between what people understand as a category and how they make decisions based on that information. So, for instance, if you're able to actually predict that a hurricane is going to be a category four, and it is a category four, people really value that, that level of precision, meaning there is a perceived value when the wind speed is predicted accurately and that value is greater than all of the other values that we were able to measure meaning that people do value being able to understand what category a storm is more than anything else and that was pretty interesting because uh we we were lucky enough to have access to this florence storm which most of the impacts associated with the storm were related to precipitation right but even in that case people still valued you know like wind speed prediction improvement more than the other improvements. That's not to say that they didn't value the other improvements. Actually, they did value improvements in precipitation or forecasting more than the people that were affected in the region that Michael affected. But still, wind speed is one that trumps all, all of the factors that we evaluated. And, you know, like, it kind of makes sense because it's a simple, it's a simple measure to understand, right? It's the higher the category is, the more dangerous it is. And, you know, like, there is plenty of research that shows that people tend to relate that category with damages, right? So it's, it's a warning. It's a, it's, a, it's a very accurate warning sign. And I would say much more accurate in, in, the, like, in people's head 
than the kind of uncertainty. People don't really understand the kind of uncertainty and there is plenty of work regarding that misunderstanding, right? Like the generalized misunderstanding of that product. But category is pretty clear and it somewhat reflects what's supposed to reflect. The kind of uncertainty doesn't. So when you talk about track predictions to people that they don't really understand what that means for you. Thanks, Jackson. Whether or not returns after this. Severe weather can strike any time. And when it does, Seven's got you covered. 24-7. We'll see storms developing. We have a long line of rainfall here. We are the storm station. Seven News. You're at the beach and get in trouble in the water. You're sinking fast with the threat of drowning looming large. Here's meteorologist Brent Cameron chatting with the folks who come to your rescue. Hi, I'm meteorologist Brent Cameron and welcome to Weather or Not. Today we see how a day at the beach could possibly turn tragic. And who better to talk with than Jerry Falconer, operations supervisor for the Ocean Rescue Division of the Miami Beach Fire Department. Jerry, welcome. Hi Brent, glad to be with you. When we look to go to the beach, we look for sunshine, fun, relaxation. The last thing on our minds would be trouble, the kind of trouble that could come from rip currents. Now they sometimes are called hidden dangers, are they not? Absolutely, uh, probably the biggest issue with uh, coming to the beach in regards to a safety issue is going into the water and uh, the ocean can change uh, hour to hour, uh, day to day. And so it's very important to know what the weather is doing in regards to uh, the ocean. And uh, yes, your, your rip currents are the biggest threat you'll find uh, when you come to the beach, uh, should they be present. All right, so let's continue to dive in and discover what they are when it comes to rip currents and how common they are. Now, Jerry, most people know they involve fast moving channels of water. What more can you tell us? Well, to start off, Brent, one of the biggest misconceptions is and I'm glad you use the terminology rip current. It's not a rip tide. Uh, it's a current of water. Uh, there are some factors uh, relating to the tide, but uh, the reality is uh, a rip tide is a misnomer. It may be the na- great name for a boat or, uh, or, or, or a beach house, but uh, for the ocean, it's a rip current. And as you stated, it's a channel of water uh, that flows backwards to the ocean. It's kind of like a, a treadmill in the ocean. The unfortunate thing, it's going away from the beach. And there's ways to uh, you know, recognize them. Uh, there's ways to uh, deal with them in regards to if you are caught in a rip current. But the key thing is to uh, recognize uh, what the day is at the beach. And there's a lot of different ways you can do that with uh, warning flags, warning signs that here on Miami Beach, our lifeguards will post every day in regards to the uh, conditions of the ocean. Now, the danger or potential danger from these rip currents, are they gonna be more of a factor during low tide or high tide, or does it really matter? The biggest factor, Brent, is not so much the tide, but the wind. The wind is the biggest factor. What it's doing is when we have sustained winds over the course of a couple of days, the ocean water, the waves are being pushed up to the beach. They have to flow backwards. Water can't continually rush up the beach. It's gotta go back uh, into the ocean. So as it's pushed up to the beach in great force with the wind that flows backwards, which creates the rip current. If the tide is high, obviously there's a greater volume of water. At low tide, there are more areas such as sandbars that will help you get out of the pull 
or the grip of the rip. Now, Jerry, by the way, I love your analogy of, of a treadmill. I haven't heard that before, but that's really just spot on, I think. Part of your training, I assume, includes spotting rip currents. Is that a hard thing to do? What do you look for? Well, from uh, the life-saving standpoint, and as far as training for all our ocean rescue professionals, uh, we go through extensive training. Uh, a couple of things, first of all, uh, when you come to the beach, uh, we have a flag warning system. We can talk about that in a little bit. But as far as spotting a rip, the things you want to look for, and a lot of people can do this very easily, is the shoreline, uh, what's called a concave section. If you walk down the beach, you'll see the shoreline come in and go out. It'll uh, sort of have a concave section. That's where your rip's going to be because that's where the water is rushing up and then flowing back. Also, you're going to look for an area where waves aren't breaking. It's kind of ironic that a lot of people will look for areas that are calm, but that's because the water is flowing again backwards in the rip current and uh, waves are not breaking there. So the key thing is calm areas aside from wavy areas and then also the, the sort of concave section of the beach as far as the shoreline. Jerry, I'm from Indiana, and explaining a rip current to a Hoosier would probably be something like explaining a snow squall to uh, South Floridians. How do you get the message across to visitors at our very popular, world-renowned beaches? Well, the key thing is, and, and we really try to get this point across, anytime you go to any body of water, uh, whether it's enclosed such as a pool, uh, a lake or a coastal area, your lifeguard is your lifesaver in many different ways. They'll actually make the rescue if necessary, but they'll have the information before you even go into the water. Uh, we have a flag warning system. Uh, it's a red flag, a yellow flag, and a green flag. Think of a stoplight. Uh, that will tell you uh, the condition of the water. Uh, Secondly, we have placards and signs on the back of all our lifeguard towers, which was to explain everything that's going on in regards to a rip current, a, a depiction of the, what a rip current uh, looks like, and also what the flags mean. So in a very, very simple way, the key is swim near a lifeguard, and they have the best information on the best place to swim and probably the best area to stay out of. And probably your advice would be never to swim alone, right? Uh, the key two things we say, swim with a, swim with a buddy, uh, whether they're on the beach or with you in the water. And then the key thing, too, is, my friend, when in doubt, don't go out. That's good advice. All right. If someone's caught in a rip current, Jerry, we're, they're told not to panic, right? What else do we tell people to do how to swim out of a rip current? The key thing with a rip current, and, 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 and most people don't understand this, you're not being pulled under. Uh, and so if you understand that you're not being pulled under, uh, you can let the rip current carry you out until it subsides. Uh, once the rip current breaks through the sandbar and gets to the ocean side, the power diminishes and you can swim parallel or sideways to the beach. If you're in the pull of the rip current, it's an area that can be very narrow or very wide. The key thing is to swim parallel or sideways where you can then get to a shallow or in most cases a sandbar. The key thing is not to panic. Now that has very different effects on different people. 
Uh, most people don't recognize that they're in the rip current until they might be a bit offshore, meaning 75, 100 yards offshore. They'll then try to swim against it. And uh, that's where we use the terminology of the treadmill. Uh, there are those who will get into water that they're not used to being in over their head, like jumping into the deep end of the pool and not knowing how to swim. And that creates the issue. So the key with a rip current, if you have the swimming ability, swim parallel to the beach until you're out of the pole or till you're able to stand. If you're not, the lifeguard is going to be there and help you in whatever way, shape or form to get you out of that rip. As a, uh, a situation today, uh, we had quite a few of them. Conditions today on Miami Beach uh, were very uh, 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 producing rip currents and we made quite a few rescues of individuals up and down the beach. The irony of it all is do not panic. We had one individual today, a great story. I know how to handle rip currents. I know what they're all about. He was in the rip and didn't know what to do. So uh, the key thing is uh, do not panic. And uh, the lifeguard is there to uh, uh, witness it, to surveil it, to prevent it. And should you be caught in the rip current there to save you? I've heard that many times about even experienced swimmers uh, thinking they don't need to worry about it, but even the strongest of swimmers can uh, really battle the force of a rip current, even in shallow waters. Isn't that true? Absolutely. And and just a, a real quick sort of side thing. You had mentioned uh, you being from Indiana. Many, many times our visitors are more in tune and aware of what the water conditions are as compared to uh, some of our local residents, our, our Floridians, who believe they're immune from rip currents. Well, uh, it, a rip current can handle a visitor, uh, a, a resident equally. <laughs> and they, it's just a question of understanding uh, how the, uh, the rip current affects you while you're swimming. All right, and as we wrap up, Jerry, are there any other things regarding rip currents that you'd like to add? The reality is for us here on Miami Beach, uh, about 80% of our rescues are rip current related. Uh, the one thing about uh, the, the, the ocean and swimming is another factor is alcohol and water really don't mix. So uh, a lot of times alcohol is a factor with people not being able to understand the threat of the rip. When you come to the beach, come to a lifeguard protected beach, the lifeguard has the best information for you. Check the flags, red, yellow, green. Think of a stoplight, red, yellow, green. They will be able to direct you where the best place to is and uh, enjoy a day at the beach because the reality is a day at the beach is better than any day at work. <laughs> All right, Jerry, thank you, by the way, for what you do in helping and serving us all. Thank you for that and for talking with us today. You're welcome, Brent, and I hope to see you at the beach soon. Take care, sounds good. We have been talking with the force and danger of rip currents and uh, that, of course, can spoil a perfectly good day at the beach. We thank Jerry Falconer, Operation Supervisor for the Ocean Rescue Division of the Miami Beach Fire Department. Thank you. Thanks, Brent. A fill fact when we return. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the Storm Station, Seven News. And now, here's a fill fact. What happens when two hurricanes meet in the middle of the ocean? 
You'd think they would mix together and become one monster system. But that doesn't happen. Instead, they dance around each other. If the hurricanes are similar in strength and size, they might just spin around each other before going in their separate ways. This is called the Fujiwara effect. However, if one of them is much bigger than the other, the larger could absorb the smaller one to create a slightly bigger storm. In our next issue, if you had to wait for a hurricane to hit in order to test construction methods, you would be sitting and waiting for a while. But right here in South Florida, there is a wall of wind that helps test those methods, and it's at a local university. That's all coming up in our next edition of Weather or Not, which drops August 2nd. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, please send us an email at wxpodcast at wsvn.com. This podcast is produced by the 7 Weather Team. Original music by Chris Crane, with technical support by Stephen Sejas. Thank you for listening to Weather or Not.